What's up, everybody? You have made the wise decision to download or stream another episode of March Mad Men. It's the show that sets out to decide which of these 64 slasher films merits the title Greatest Ever Made. This wraps up another two-parter with votes on the original 1988 Child's Play versus the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. But that's not all. Either The Strangers or Midnight Meat Train are getting a one-way ticket out of town. Let's give a listen. All right, we are back from a little break after that contentious matchup. I have a beer here that uh, I received for Christmas. I'll be honest, I think they got it for me because there's a cat on it, and I am a cat man, but I know that this is a uh, West Coast IPA, which is always a big hit in my house. Uh, It's called... God, I should have put the light on. Browrit West. God damn it. Uh, Brewery Brewery West. That is absolutely what it is, John. That's the brewery that makes uh, Golden Drock out of uh, of Belgium. You're kidding. Oh, wow. Oh, so yeah, you're familiar with it. Cool. Well, in my friend's honor, I'm going to crack that baby. I'm sorry, Vic. No, that's Brewery West. They're actually stationed out in Long Beach. You know, Rich, you could just let me have that. I'm going to honestly turn the light on because it didn't look like the word brewery to me. So hold on. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not spelled that way. It has like a J in it. So I may even be butchering the pronunciation, but I'm still right. It's definitely that's a West Coast important. IPA. All right. Well, maybe, maybe, I mean, Rich knows his Long Beach and Southern uh, breweries. It does, it is spelled Browerge West, (laughs) but I'm going to look to see if it says where this is actually made. Um, I know this is great radio, but I can't tell. It says canned. Okay. Like they literally make it really difficult. It's like a little circle. Um. Oh fuck! <laughs> Just spilled my beer on myself. All right, I can't turn That's it around. It was to look all, good. It was, yeah, it was it was all a trick to make you spill your beer. Vic is totally right. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. Um, it is pretty good. I'm not gonna say it's my favorite West Coast IPA, but all right. What are you guys on to? I'm getting ready to crack open a uh, a, a local Houston St. Arnold juicy mm. IPA. Which is literally the only beer I could find that had a an ABV over four and a half percent. So uh, here we go. Yeah, dude. I don't know what that is. I, I, I don't know what that is about Houston beers, but they are all super weak. And St. Arnold is like the only craft brewer that you can really get down that way. And I uh, I don't have a problem with St. Arnold. I just haven't found anything I've been passionate about whenever I'm in town. I think this is, the, this is the first IPA Vic has ever consumed on this show, if I'm not mistaken. That can't you be are true. Not mistaken, John. I am mistaken or I'm not mistaken? 
not mistaken. No, no. Vic does not go for the IPAs, bud. Sorry, Rich. I don't know who you've been drinking with. <laughs> uh, just feel like it's been a lot of shows, a lot of desperate times, a lot of drinking. Well, he hasn't um, been I'm quarantined gonna, in Texas before. <laughs> this is me. This is me pouring my New Belgium. I don't. I don't think you can hear it anymore. But it's okay. It sounded like I was urinating, so just forget it. He's also urinating, everyone. <laughs> I'm, also, I'm also urinating while pouring. <laughs> He's filling a two-liter uh, bottle. <laughs> He's filling an empty Mountain Dew uh, bottle at the same time he pours his beer. Okay. Uh, (laughs) We're already off the rails here, folks. Well, let's proceed with our next matchup. And uh, who knows? This could be a close call. It's two evenly matched opponents, theoretically, with very different strengths and weaknesses. For this one, we're uh, venturing into the peak franchise, part of the bracket. These are the core films of the slasher film. These are big brand names that everyone is familiar with, and they're going to they're gonna duke it out, and we're going to find out what are the big household names that most deserve to be proclaimed greatest slasher film of all time. And tonight... The eighth seed is Child's Play 1988, and it's squaring off the original, of course. It's squaring off against, not the original, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is the 2003 remake, probably the second of three or five remakes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it is the nine seed in the Peak Franchise Regional. And as it worked out, I'm going to be introducing both of these films. So uh, let me make sure my vocal cords are wet with Browerif West IPA. Oh, thank God he was talking about beer. (laughs) Hey, now. All right. Well, the 1988 film Child's Play was based on a story by Don Mancini and directed by Tom Holland, the acclaimed star of such films as Hatchet 2. Haha, <laughs> little inside joke there uh, if you listen to our last show. Anyway, this is your basic slasher movie story. Infamous criminal transfers his soul into a children's toy. Small boy watches the toy kill people in his life and then must team up with a cynical cop in order to survive. Yeah, it's another one of those. Child's Play was a hit, though not a huge one, as it cost a fairly pricey at that time $9 million and essentially quadrupled its budget with worldwide grosses. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have to double your budget to make a profit at all, given advertising costs and such that aren't uh, counted in the budget. Still, a franchise was clearly born here and one that would live a very, very long life. Hell, this Chucky franchise might outlive us all. Anyway, the movie is famous for Chucky, the horror icon that uh, a lot of folks put on the Mount Rushmore of slashers alongside Jason, Freddy, and Michael. He's certainly instantly recognizable, and I would guess that horror horror fans from A to Z, Australia to Zimbabwe, could identify Chucky on sight. Now, I've only seen this movie once for the podcast um, and, you know, other than in the theater when I was a kid, but I remember really enjoying it this time in that kind of, uh, it was a few months ago, but I remember finding that the jaw-dropping, is this for real kind of moments 
really entertain me. It's kind of just north of it's so bad it's good. It's definitely campy, but I don't hold that against a movie, certainly not in this particular tournament. Even so, I don't think that's to say it's poorly made. For example, there's this wild car sequence in the middle. I wouldn't call it a car chase, but it's Chucky and Chris Sarandon in a, in a car at high speeds. It struck me as extremely well executed and just a, a really fun scene. If you've seen the movie, you probably know what I'm talking about. So I think that on some level, Child's Play is a classic because it breaks the mold for slasher films. It thinks outside the box, select your cliche of choice, but it really does take the genre, the subgenre, in a bold, surprising, and funny new direction without ever going full horror comedy, at least in this first movie. Done right, I think a Chucky movie can have its cake and eat it too. Chucky's a lot like Freddy in that way. He's famous for his one-liners, but also for his kills. It was always going to be more of a joke, I think, than Nightmare on Elm Street ever was in this paradigm. But I think that these movies, the Child's Play movies, do operate in that netherworld between the scary and the comedic. I can never personally ever remember being afraid of Chucky, but who knows? Maybe some of our listeners can. Which brings us to its opponent tonight. TCM 03, directed by Marcus Nispel, written by Scott Kosar. This Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake came out in 2003. The logline on IMDb is as follows. After picking up a traumatized young hitchhiker, five friends find themselves stalked and hunted by a deformed chainsaw-wielding loon and his family of equally psychopathic killers. It cost about the same as Child's Play 15 years earlier, but this movie doubled its domestic gross, and it blew past the $100 million mark worldwide, so by any measure, this was a big hit. It also spawned a number of sequels and remakes, or remakes of sequels, or whatever the hell is going on with the timeline. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely one of the more incoherent semi-franchises out there. But this particular movie is loaded with stars or at least recognizable, credible actors. I think people, audiences were surprised by how everyone and critics were surprised by how everyone involved in the production of this movie took it seriously and tried to make it their own, not just a cynical knockoff or a total reinvention that is dismissive of the original. I think perhaps it's most famous for that camera shot that reverses through the gunshot wound in a woman's head, which feels as improbably dynamic as the under the swing shot did in the original, except with a whole lot more shock value and narrative impact. What do I personally like about this movie? Well, lots of things, but my biggest personal connection to the movie is that a year or so before it came out, I danced with Jessica Biel at a club. She was cool. There was no connection between us whatsoever. I didn't know it was Jessica Biel while we were dancing or even who Jessica Biel was at that time. My friend told me, but she had security with her. And anyway, it was fun watching her take on this role soon after that experience. And I think she's very memorable in it. So are Arlie Ermey and Jonathan Tucker. The other most memorable thing about this movie, perhaps, would be its look, uh, which is a credit to both Nispel and the DP, Daniel Pearl. 
he shot the original in one of the coolest, most faithful aspects of this remake. Pearl's style had evolved tremendously since 1973, obviously, and I don't think it has the same feel at all as that movie, but there is a disturbingly grungy, borderline diseased look to the world of these Texas wackos that really sticks with you. Watching it again didn't quite give me the excitement that we've been talking about tonight, that there might be layers to peel back in the future, meanings to unpack, but I do think it's one of the best remakes of its era. In some ways, it's impeccable filmmaking, and while I I definitely have issues with the film, especially in Act 3, it certainly feels like the third best Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, right? And who knows, maybe there's a good argument for it being second. So let's begin the discussion of these two films. Uh, Rich, which of these movies do you want to put in your two cents on first? Uh, I want to keep talking about Fear Street. (laughs) That's what the audience wants. (laughs) Yeah, there's part of me that almost wants to take back my vote just so we can keep talking about it some uh, another time. Um, Rich, I already have uh, Rich. I already have high blood pressure. Are you trying to kill me? Uh, in in lieu of that, you know, I'll say something about, about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. I know a lot of people who really like this movie. I did not care for it when it came out. I don't really care for it now. I, I wouldn't say that I strongly dislike the movie. I do have a real fondness for the originals, like many of us do. And I will say I'm biased being from Texas. One thing I really always loved about especially Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2, is how much they look like Texas and feel like Texas, as absurd as they are. The the fact that Texas, and you know, there's there's there certainly is Chainsaw Massacre in this movie, but in the other movies, like, Texas is a character. It's a way of life. It's a way that people act. And this movie, everything feels like it was shot, like, maybe somewhere just outside of Seattle, um, maybe in Oregon, Everything is lit. You're you're right that it is a memorable look, but I also find it to be kind of like artificial. Like everything is like very back. Everything is backlit. Every scene is inexplicably full of smoke, so that you can see shafts of light shooting past the characters. You know, Marcus Nespel came from the commercial world. Um, he was a very prolific and probably made a fortune off of doing a, a lot of high-end commercials and it shows like you can you can see it in this this style of filmmaking you know that said he coaxes some great performances arlie ermy i think is is especially good um in this movie especially playing a character that is that is more inspired by the tcm universe than it is a actual reference to the to the original films you know the the kid like the the movie is supposed to be set in the 70s but it weirdly feels like the 90s you know, like there's there's just something about the like that doesn't quite add up for me. You know, but that said, they do take their kills seriously. And I like the fact that they t- take took the original universe and they try to evolve it and make it their own. That's an authentic compliment. All right, uh, Vic, your thoughts on TCM two thousand three? I will say that Arlie Ermy in this movie felt like when they cast Patrick Stewart as Professor X. Yeah, where you were like, well. Obviously, like, what? Who else would you put in this movie? Like, he is really good. My main thought, John, and, and honestly, I'm pissed that you told this story already, is that Jessica Biel is just distractingly hot through this whole movie. Yes, like her friends are impaled on meat hooks, and all I can look at is that she's walking around in a wet t-shirt. 
she is so hot that it actually detracts from the film. And so what I, I, I'm not sure I totally called, agree with that, but I will say she is unbelievably hot. Yes, definitely. I'm with you so far yeah. on that. Uh, but I fully intended to uh, follow this up with the story of you hitting on Jessica Biel. And in fact, I didn't hit on her. I could... John. <laughs> there <Just> was... <laughs> it was very innocent. It was like, oh. <laughs> Look, I, here's, what, here's what I'm going to do, John. I'm going to read what I wrote and then just shut up, okay? Because right. this okay. is me trying to heal the divide over Fear Street, Fair okay? Yeah. And, and, you, and you're not taking it. It's just pissing me off. So, but what I do want to note here for our listening audience is that my boy, John Evans, once made a pass at her in a bar. And sure, it didn't work. And yes, her security detail quickly hustled her away but you hit zero pitches that you don't step up to in the plate. It is seriously one of the top three things I admire most about you, Johnny. All right? So just take the compliment. You hit on Jessica Biel in a bar, okay? I, I love, like, that the, there's what happened and there's what Vic thinks happened. And I'm going to go with the legend. Let's go with the legend. Yeah, print the legend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a smart move. Um, yeah, no – I, I mean, I agree. This movie is, it's graphic. I, my, I remember my initial reaction to this movie was if it had been called Wrong Turn, you'd have been like, holy shit, that was a great movie. But because it's <laughs> called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it, 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 I mean, no movie can kind of clear that bar. But it's a solid, I mean, it's a solid slasher. It's a good movie. It's, it's violent. Uh, Marcus Nispel seems to really have a, a, a flair for it. That guy went off a fucking cliff, right? I yeah. looked him up. He hasn't done anything since 2015. I think him and Jessica Roth have a project in development right now. <laughs> and, they, and maybe that produced by the guy that did Lake Mungo, I assume. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Joel Anderson is producing, right? Yeah. It's going to be yeah. great. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's back in the commercial game. He's a, it's a weirdly like I, there's a lot of convergence with, with, uh, with doc filmmaking and the, the commercial industry. Uh, and I know a lot of people who have stories of uh, being in the Bay with Marcus as an editor doing like some like Acura commercial or, you know, shooting like close-ups of like, you know, burgers. So uh, I'm sure he's like, he's probably back there because those people just rake in cash. Yeah. Well, some people don't you. love I, the I, life of a feature director. I mean, it's extraordinarily grueling. Well, I wish him well. Because this seemed like he was he was going to be one of the up and coming horror directors, and I'm a little sad that he did he never seemed to, to sort of cash in on that. But this was I mean as a as a debut, this was enormously promising. He was he, again he it's not a home run, but it's a solid triple uh, as far as these things go. I will say as as far as child play goes, I was really surprised at the effects. And the animatronics yeah. around Chucky, that movie, that movie dies if it's not believable. Uh, and it's, it's barely believable, but it's, it's uh, really, especially with the time period, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Did you guys have the same reaction? It, it's kind of surprising how, like in retrospect, having been through all the Chucky sequels, you know, most of which I've been pretty checked out from, but I, I've seen more than I probably should have. 
it's surprising to go back to the first one and see how much they're trying. And like, you know, they don't always land it, but like, I like my hats off to them. Like, I feel like they were going for it. And as you were saying, John, like Chucky established himself as a slasher, not by coming out of the gate as sort of like a, a joke or like a parody of the genre as he, as he became later in his, in his franchise. Like he started out trying to be like a legitimate contender and he ended up earning that spot in terms of being like a, a recognizable uh, character. And yeah, Vic, I think it's that, that stems exactly from what you're talking about is that a lot of effort went into the animatronics and like making him this threatening figure that you weren't laughing at, but you actually felt kind of scared of. And Brad Dourif too. I mean, Brad Dourif is yeah. really, Brad, Brad yeah, he's, he's definitely like essential to that. Yeah, he's a treasure. Uh, I, I don't know offhand if this movie got any awards for its visual effects, but it certainly could have. And I totally agree. State of the art and practical effects at their best. And that that's part of why the movie holds up. Like if you, you know, used early 90s, a few years later, uh, CGI, this movie would probably be unwatchable. But they were fortunate enough to be in that sweet spot. And great technicians really pulled it off. So, okay, we've talked about both movies. The one thing I want to add is that Charles Lee Ray, the killer voiced or actually played in this movie by uh, Brad Dourif, is like one of the strangest weirdo bad guy (laughs) multi-hyphenates I can think of. I mean, what do we know about this guy? He's a strangler, an armed robber, a voodoo practitioner, plus a couple of other things. The the voodoo has got to be the the most nonsensical part of this movie, which is saying yeah. a lot for a movie about a killer doll. But like the voodoo, like going back to like get like the 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 voodoo priest that like taught him the curse, like that is like some wackadoo like storytelling, <laughs> you know. And they just kind of like they just they just go with it. And I'm not saying that it that it works or I like it, but like I guess it just fits in with like how like outlandish the, the rest of it is. But uh, yeah, the voodoo part of it, like, and that being something that he breaks out in the first five minutes of that <laughs> character is pretty unexpected and ridiculous. Yeah. They threw the kitchen sink at this guy. As far as his backstory, I, I do find it interesting how difficult it is to categorize him. And it's funny that all of that just kind of adds up to a smart-ass, mean-spirited, and selfish white dude as far as Chucky's ultimate personality. And you kind of lose a lot of the potential avenues of depth or contradiction that this character could conceivably have. Yeah, I just I remember when he when he goes back to his his voodoo teacher's house and and takes his voodoo doll and then snaps him into like 50 pieces and I was like if you were someone who knew voodoo like why do you have that? Why did you make a voodoo doll <laughs> with yourself? Maybe maybe there maybe there are good things you can do with it too. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, 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 <laughs> He's, he's just gonna like touch it gently here and there yeah. and, uh, oh that feels good doing a little bit of self-care <laughs> <laughs> 
I could I could see some like uh, Gumby and you know uh, where you you have like the the female doll and you put the dolls together. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you, guys, you guys are going to have to excuse me. I'm going to go make a voodoo doll myself right now. <laughs> and bride a voodoo doll. <laughs> oh, classic! And, and it, isn't it? Isn't it after that? Isn't it that that kill that then he like blows the guy's house up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, he blows up someone's house. No, yeah, yeah no, that that's actually no, that's his partner oh, that, right. that he blows oh, up right, at the right, okay. yeah. I mean, the, the the budget shows on this movie with with stuff like that, especially for like the you know the eighties, like they this was definitely like money was spent on this in this movie, and it it comes across. What um, I say, nine million? That's pretty high for nineteen eighty eight. It does, but it's all of these kills. Everything we're talking about is really sort of camouflaging over the fact that he's eighteen inches tall and weighs six pounds. Like every kill is tailored to like what could someone you know who can't reach a, a countertop with a knife block on it, like what can they do to hurt someone? Which is all the more reason why it's absurd that there are like nine of these movies. <laughs> Somehow it just goes on and on and on. For the first one, it's I, it's an entertaining, it's a it's a fun, entertaining '80s slasher, like. I don't know. I, I I didn't hate it. I've tried while we were, you know, in the early stages of this podcast, watching a bunch of Chucky sequels to see if like, oh, there, maybe there's another one we should shoehorn in here. Because I think this is one of the only peak franchise movies we have that doesn't have another sequel. Uh, it's the only one that made made it into our tournament. And I just couldn't, you know, like some of them are okay in one way or another. Uh, uh, several of them I didn't get through. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean they're garbage, but like, uh, yeah, this franchise just doesn't really do it for me. I, I will say Vic and I were both talking off podcast about our fondness for the, I think it's part two that's, that's takes place at like a military camp where I forgot the little boy's art name already. Did you watch, did you rewatch that one? Andy Barkley is the guy, kid's name, right? Andy. Yeah, there's there's one where it's like it, it catches up with Andy again, and he's a teenager who's been sent off to like boot camp. Essentially, that, that can't be two. Um, that can't be two because I saw one where he's still like a kid, and it's dreadful, and it ends in like a toy factory with a lot of like you know melting and and machines and hydraulics and stuff. Does that ring a bell? I'm pretty sure that's two. So you must okay, be I mean, talking that, about that, three. That, that, that almost sounds like all of them, but sorry, but no. Part part three is the one where he goes off to military camp, and that is by by my uh, admittedly foggy recollection. That is the best of the early sequels. Well, shit, I I haven't seen that one. <laughs> oh, you should you, sh- mm-hmm. you should check it out. I also like. I mean, like I think I've established like I'm a I'm a fan of anything that throws like an oddball curve into the into the mix, and like I feel like I really wanted to like Bride of Chucky, and I tried to watch it several times i mean i did i did finish it i just don't think like it got too just like too out there too self-referential like too like like sort of winking at itself for for my taste and so like that that in a way me coming back to this kind of refreshing the fact that it wasn't doing that almost yeah i skipped those and went straight to like the movies with brad dorif's daughter I went from like two to <laughs> <laughs> brad dorif's daughter so yeah maybe um 
maybe I should double back, but there's just so many damn movies. So, uh, any, uh, any other thoughts, gentlemen, on either of these films before we get to the voting? No, let's vote this one out. All right. Um, trying to figure out the most dramatic way into this. Which one of you do I think might vote for Child's Play? I think I have to say, uh, you know, I really don't have any idea what you guys are going to say. So this is kind of interesting. Rich, uh, cast your vote first, please, and tell us why. Uh, pretty safe bet. I'm going to say Child's Play. It's funny because I like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, and I don't like the Child's Play franchise, but I'd say that I do not care for this entry in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, and I sort of like the the gonzo 80s true, like what I think of as sort of like the, the pure like backbone of what what really like gets people about the slasher genre. I think that there's a little bit of it alive in Child's Play. I'm casting my vote for Child's Play. All right. Nice. Nice. Vic, I think I need you to go next. Well, I'm going to give a, a, a shout out to Chris Sarandon, uh, who clearly appreciates the work of Tom Holland, who uh, I think in Friday night probably got his second best will after Dog Day Afternoon. But I'm going to cast my vote for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe it's because I'm marooned in Texas. Uh, and losing my mind, but uh, I'm going to go with the, just the one that feels a little more serious and is taking the genre more seriously. I just want to spite Rich at every turn now. <laughs> He's on your shit list too now, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, that comments an inch deep, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't go into this process with an easy answer on this one as there's such different filmic experiences. Neither movie gained or lost a ton of ground in my esteem with the last viewing. My first thought was that I've never really been a huge fan of Chucky for this tournament. As I just said, I've watched some sequels or at least started watching them. And one of the things I keep thinking is that the whole conceit of this possessed killer children's toy doesn't hold the fascination for me that it must for a lot of people who are just, you know, into this whole Chucky thing. I just don't find it all that scary or interesting that a seemingly benign, even harmless doll can actually be a foul-mouthed slasher killer. I get that it can make people let their guard down, that such a killer could get away with a lot, and sometimes as these movies play out, there's dark humor to be mined in situations involving this wolf in sheep's clothing. I would just put Chucky pretty far down my personal list of favorite slashers. He, he doesn't really do it for me, as I said. So, honestly, I did not cast my vote in my previous um, in my write-up. I, d- I don't know. I still, I didn't decide. So I think this is kind of unprecedented and, and fun. Real quick, I want each of you in turn to tell me why we should watch the movie you voted for again. Vic, starting with you. Jessica Beale. Oh, <laughs> I hesitate to say, say no more, but you, you just about got me. All right. Uh, Rich. <laughs> Brad Dorif? TCM it is. (laughs) Large doll? (laughs) Teddy Ruxpin. Yeah. You know, no, honestly, I'm, I'm, 
a little torn because I think that Child's Play is really kind of a fun watch, and I don't think TCM is, but I think it is more more for my money a real slasher movie. So okay, like one one more. I'm just opening the floor. I I I question that logic, John. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say I, again, like, and I think that, that there is a distinction to be made. I know I kind of brought this up earlier, but like, I'd say that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a is certainly a a horror film. Like, it's a you know, it starts to bridge the, the like slasher and like it has like sort of haunted house elements to it almost, where you know they're just sort of like making like terrible discovery upon terrible discovery, um, and then getting hung on meat hooks. But like in terms of like a slasher, like the classical slasher, unique weapons, unique kills, you know, stalking people down one by one, iconic image. I mean, I don't know. As I'm arguing it, it's like, I don't know. It's hard to argue that against like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But like Leatherface isn't even really the focus of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. Whereas like Chucky, like it, like he's an indelible. You know, when you look at Universal Horror Nights, ah, fuck, you're gonna see Tech, you're gonna see Leatherface out there as much as you'd see Chucky. Fuck it, I have no argument. Never mind. Do whatever you want. <laughs> I was kind of with you there for a second, in the sense that yeah, in, I, I was in these two I, I movies. Yeah, w- with regards to these two movies pitted against each other, I would argue that Child's Play is more of a slasher film, but it's but just by the nature of being part of the lineage of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I feel like it gets grandfathered in. I think if this wasn't a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, I don't even know if it would have made it into this competition. It's interesting because, Vic, didn't you say the exact opposite? That you almost wish it was like Wrong Turn or something and not a TCM movie? I did. I mean, John, what I'm going to say is if we're trying to hustle this along and you asked Rich and I for our (laughs) final word on it. I know, but this is like a really interesting situation. It's a really it hasn't this hadn't played out before this way, so I thought we might go with it just briefly. Yes, uh, because like honestly, this whole setup was supposed to be with the voting that we could come to a juncture where the two of two of us are desperately trying to convince the third person, and it's happened once or twice. But I just thought, you know, I really was totally open. I've never been totally open before. I don't, I mean, so John, you're, you are correct that I did at some point say that if Texas Chainsaw Massacre was called Wrong Turn, it would have, it, it wouldn't have lived in the shadow of Toby Hooper's uh, masterpiece. And that might have actually elevated it in, in sort of our minds. I don't know how that plays into whether or not it, it actually constitutes a slasher. I think that's pretty, pretty clear cut. Um, it's just, I, I, I don't know, at this juncture, I just want something that takes the genre a little bit more seriously than Child's Play does. And again, due respect to Chris Sarandon and Brad Dourif and, and the kid who is is almost painfully cute. Like, everything he says is, uh, you know, Spielbergian in its ability to make you go, oh, that poor kid, he has no dad. Um I just find that to be sort of a weird commentary. I don't feel like Child's Play is necessarily taking the genre lightly. If anything, I think it's maybe taking it too seriously. Like, if anything, like, I'm just surprised that they're trying so hard. 
because like the rest of it is so like the, the sheer conceit is ridiculous. Um, and yet I feel like they really just take it and try to run with it and like make it into a slasher film. And they, and they succeeded and they succeed in something like indelible, you know? So like, I don't know. I find that to be a, a, a strange critique. Rich, I'm, I'm literally unwilling to argue this with you any further. I don't, I, <laughs> okay. All right, guys. I mean, I'm, you're making me muster way more passion about childhood yeah. than I'm prepared to. I'm stunned at the amount of passion that you seem to have for this. This is an eight seed versus a nine seed, and Child's Play was higher seeded, but it is a coin toss, and ultimately, I think it it remains a coin toss. And I sort of wish both of them could go on, but ultimately, in the peak franchise category. I think we're we're not looking. I almost feel like maybe if we'd put Child's Play in the meta category, it would go on maybe a couple rounds further. But I am going to vote for TCM 2003 because I've always I've really dug that movie. I think I even maybe like it better than either of you two. So I, I think I would be remiss not to cast my vote for it. So I am going to go with Texas Chainsaw at the end of the day. It's because you're hey, still remembering I, the smell of Jessica Biel's beer-soaked <laughs> jeans every time you watch it. A, that's a pheromonal reaction, John. It's that sweaty tank top and that uh, that uh, cowboy hat that she wears. Oh, man. <laughs> I will just say, gentlemen, kudos for clearly properly seeding these two films. Yes. Yeah. All right. We got, we, got two, we got two right. <laughs> all right well one more matchup tonight in this episode and that would be in the dark horse category and uh, i guess child's play could have fit in here too because this is sort of the miscellaneous category this is where we put the weird wild strange oddball films that break the mold in some way and who knows maybe they're going to end up outshining more pedigreed or famous or commercially successful iconic slasher films and we have a couple of really interesting entries as you might expect tonight to deal with and honestly this is just as difficult of a choice for me as as the last one and it's of course the strangers a five seed in the dark horse category squaring off against midnight meat train which i don't think it was really on our radar vic or i certainly not me uh rich put it in the tournament so it ended up with a 12 uh but i just saw it for the first time um a couple weeks last week so this is going to be really fun uh vic why don't you start us off with the strangers you got it all right so the strangers 2008 written and directed by the great brian bertino who was very quiet for many years after this. I believe he wrote the sequel, but he seemed very resistant to doing that. Uh, but he since had, just to put this in the proper perspective, he's had uh, back-to-back for me solid efforts in Monster and The Dark and the Wicked. If you haven't seen The Dark and the Wicked, that's on Shutter, and it's a, a really solid film. This was a monster hit. It made $82 million off of a $9 million budget. I don't think anybody really saw that coming. The log line, after uh, Kristen shoots down her boyfriend James's marriage proposal, they return to an isolated cabin 100% sure that the night can't possibly get any worse. But then Kristen runs out of cigarettes. I mean, that's a nightmare. 
But after chugging a bottle of champagne, James decides to go out and get her some more. And then the cabin is beset by a trio of mask-wearing weirdos intent on terrorizing them. So I have a, a just a, as a, a perspective on this, this is what you come to March Madman for. I had the privilege of developing a screenplay with Brian Bertino and his producing partner. I spent a couple of afternoons hanging out at his house and breaking story with him. He's a very quiet guy. He's really intense. But his instincts are really impressive. Uh, I am not surprised that he is still making good horror films. Uh, he knows how to wring the tension out of a quiet moment. And there's a there's a simplicity to his dramatic setups uh, in all of his films that really allows you to invest in the characters before he drops the hammer on them. I love the way this film opens. So much of it is unspoken. It's heartbreakingly sad when they return to this cabin. They find all these romantic things that James has done, it clearly never having crossed his mind that Kristen might reject his proposal. So it's all awkward silences. It's even more awkward conversations. Uh, by the old Mike Kuchak measuring stick of how good a movie would be without the horror, this definitely has the making of an indie chamber piece as these two work through their relationship. I give the first 30 minutes of this movie an A+, and without giving anything away, I give the final 10 minutes an A+. The problem for me is that most of the second act is a C. Movies like this, really contained with limited characters, they depend on the believability of the characters and their actions. Once they understand what's happening, their first plan they come up with is solid. It's smart. It's what I would do. After that, they begin doing dumber and dumber things like splitting up to try and get to a radio in the shed. Who the fuck has a radio in their shed? It's still creepy imagery, but the characters pull me out of the movie until those last 10 minutes. And that's when Bertino pulls it all back together. This movie has one of the all-time great horror movie endings, even in its simplicity. And as we discovered in the course of this podcast, pulling off the ending is one of the hardest things to do in horror films. In spite of its flaws, I think that makes this movie a real contender. Well, um, let's press pause because I'm going to go out to my shed and radio you right now just to prove how wrong you are. <laughs> this a, John, is this a shot at me for those times I had to call into the podcast and my internet went out? Oh, you mean when you were in the bottom of the well, Timmy? <laughs> when I was in the bottom of the well? I could have been CB radioing, radioing you from you, a shed in Texas. I told you to get a radio and put it in your shed, but you didn't listen to me. <laughs> you said, nobody's doing that, John. Nobody. All right. Well, well put. A lot of uh, a lot of things there that I agree with. Um, okay, Rich, tell us about Midnight Meat Train. I can't wait to hear this because uh, this is sort of one of your babies. Uh, this is sort of your uh, let's scare Jessica to death <laughs> of this tournament. <laughs> I mean, like like I said, like I when you watch a lot of horror films, I definitely respond to and the things that are that are that are different um, and really like kind of like shake up the, uh, the, the conventions like tend to stick in my memory. And sometimes that's for, for better or worse. Um, the, the midnight meat train, this is a good pairing by the way, for, for more reasons than one midnight meat train is, was also released in 2008. It was released uh, shortly there, shortly after the strangers, I believe based on Clive Barker's uh, 
1984 short story of the same name, which can be found in, I believe, volume one, maybe volume two of Barker's collection, uh, The Books of Blood. Um, I was a big Clive Barker fan, especially in my younger days. And uh, I have to admit the the short story itself, which is much more scant than the, than the sprawling narrative that this movie turns into, um, was not necessarily one of my favorites. But I think that they did some really interesting things with it in terms of translating Barker's work here. It was the English language debut uh, of the director, Ryuhei Kitamura, and it stars Bradley Cooper, uh, Leslie Bibb. Uh, oddly, it stars Brooke Shields, of course, Ted Raimi, um, Roger Bart, and Vinnie Jones as, uh, as the killer. The logline is essentially that it's about a swarmy, pretentious photographer played by Bradley Cooper who's chasing his artistic muse for photography when it leads him to a chance encounter and subsequent obsession with the subway butcher and a dark secret beneath the streets of Los Angeles. So its reception here is really interesting. It premiered in 2008 to only a hundred screens after a long delay and was immediately shuffled off for a quick DVD release. So Clive Barker has, was very vocal about feeling like he was mistreated by Lionsgate's release plan And he specifically said that he believed that the studio's president, Joe Drake, was shortchanging other people's films to focus more attention on films like The Strangers, where Joe Drake received a producing credit. So as a result, there were a lot of horror websites that that created uh, online campaigns to sort of like draw in a bit of a cult following in light of its, uh, its scaled back release. You know, like Clive Barker, like tends to inspire kind of cult classic uh, films that are both revered and and hated by by many. I'll say I'm a pretty conflicted fan when it comes to his film work, but I think that his taste for hyper real violence and the bizarre ending on this movie really speak to uh, the greater you know body of of his work. I'll just uh, throw a quick quote out here, like bloody disgusting, like had a review that they they essentially said like Barker fans will rejoice in what the director has given them. He's taken the genes from other films and translated into an action-packed blood fest. It's been a long time since a major horror film has given such loving treatment by its director. Um, I would, you know, I would largely agree with that. The movie is, is very like noir. It has this chilliness um, that is, it's all shot in Los Angeles. It's sort of evocative of something like collateral, and, you know, and maybe because I'm from Los Angeles, every time I ride a subway train, there's definitely a moment where I'm pretty sure I've missed my stop and I've gone to some sort of mysterious point of no return. So I can certainly relate to that like component that, that repeats itself over and over again. Um, Clive Berker definitely loves works where the protagonist is obsessed with some kind of slasher. If you think of Candyman, I wouldn't necessarily call Hellraiser a slasher film, but it's not too far astray. Um, Lord of Illusions... And again, this all plays into the the noir mythos. It's all about the the detective who sucked into the dark underbelly of some kind of world that he never even knew existed before. And it's his, his obsession that continues to draw him further and further into the darkness. Um, I will say stylistically, I kind of hate it. Like, there's a lot of digital camera moves and like glossy visuals and overcranked footage, which is all stuff that I find very annoying and and I feel like is is very evocative of like the late '90s and just like people trying to do camera tricks that don't 
that don't mean much, but it's also full of clever ideas. Like you talked about the the camera pulling through the the woman's head in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. This thing is full of stuff like that. Like it's all sorts of deaths from weird perspectives. You're constantly seeing things from the people who are murdered on the train. Um, it's just that it's done with these unfortunate digital effects. Although there is one very good practical dismembering of a corpse, and there's some creature effects in it that I think are pretty good. Um, Vinnie Jones plays the killer. He's very imposing. I think he does a pretty good job with a with a nearly wordless part. He does most of his work with a hammer, which is a weapon that I don't feel like you've seen a whole lot before, surprisingly. I mean, I hate the fact that Bradley Cooper is the lead in it. I think he's a pretty lame ham in this film. And there's way too much, like, people chasing other people around. The movie is nothing but, like, a, the, or I'm sorry, the plot, rather, is nothing but a series of this person deciding they should follow this person and then someone else deciding that they should follow someone else. Like, they could have made this thing a whole lot leaner. And, um, and finally, the ending, which I won't give away, is a real focal point for me and something that I think truly sets this movie apart. It does bear some odd similarities to Candyman, and I won't give any more specifics than that. But, you know, it does have, the, it sums up this story where you have a lead character who has this all-consuming desire to track down the slasher, and it leads to this unraveling sanity and just ultimately ends in a very nihilistic place that I really appreciate. So, you know, this thing is grisly and, and artificial, but it's also sort of extra twisted. And, you know, somehow the slasher is the most believable character. The ending is so bizarre and near incomprehensible that it's stuck with me over the years. It's just a, it's a pretty chilling and gore-tastic slasher film that, uh, that sticks in my mind. Excellent rundown, Rich. I didn't want to tip my hand before you started talking, but I kind of love this movie. I can't believe I've never seen it before. I was shocked at how into it I was. Uh, Rich comes through again as far as contributing a movie I really dig. Vic, I'm still waiting uh, for you to give me one of those, buddy. <laughs> I was going to say, that feels like a shot, John. <laughs> That's okay. Go fuck yourself. Hey, maybe this is the year. You know, Lucky, the one we talked about at the top. Go see Lucky. You'll oh, see. Okay. Yeah, I meant for the tournament. I didn't mean like every movie you've ever mentioned in, in your life. But yes, yes, I will see Lucky. Thank you. Yeah. Midnight Me Train, this is about as cheery as David Fincher 7, as gory as any slasher you can name, and extremely sleek and professional in its filmmaking style. Uh, honestly, I would have said it was shot for a much bigger budget than The Strangers. It's it's odd that that would somehow ended up being the little brother in some way. And uh, as Rich alluded to, yeah, they made the decision to use CGI effects for the kills and whatnot. And yeah, 2008 CGI has its limitations. But I, I think that those effects basically work. I don't know that you could have done everything that this movie sets out to do with practical effects. And the carnage is so imaginative that the quality of CGI is just persuasive enough for me to give these literally killer visuals the impact that they need. It, it worked for me. But it's definitely dicey. It's definitely a little iffy. I'm sorry, John. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just that they are so, they're so, each one is so conceptual. But like, even when you're like annoyed by the CGI, like, it's yeah. like every kill has its own like little story where it's like you don't know what perspective you're even looking from. And then it turns out that like you're looking from 
at the perspective from a guy who's dying on a hook. You know, like it's just like everything is very clever and thoughtful. Um, and it kind of makes up for the, the, the cheesiness of the CGI. Yeah, you touched on it. Like the fact that this movie, one of the things it turns on its head as far as slasher movie conventions is that we get the kills or the stalking in other movies from the perspective of the killer. Well, this movie, we have a lot shot through the eyes of the victims as they're dying, which I don't think there's another movie in this tournament that does it. It's, it's pretty effective. It's, it's yeah. Conceptually, these, these ideas that they put on the screen just kept wowing me to a degree that like, I didn't almost, I almost didn't care. Like the, the bar for the CGI to work for me to be kind of thrilled and surprised and, you know, uh, struck by the originality of it was pretty low. But the plot also takes you on quite a journey to the point that I think this script is vastly more ambitious than the average slasher film. It's ultimate destination in some ways kind of feels like a foregone conclusion at times in terms of the protagonist's arc. But I don't think the movie is setting out to shock you with that twist. I think that regardless, and you know, this is a non-spoiler show, of course, but I'll say that the ending was satisfying to me, even if there were some clues and foreshadowing that left aspects of it with little doubt from the start. I also personally think this is one of the best casts you're going to find in the tournament. I mean, we do have a few really good casts, but the character dynamics here are multi-layered and complex. I absolutely love some of the stuff between our central couple. Their relationship has some weird under-the-surface dynamics going on that the A story never mm -hmm. acknowledges. Yeah, I, I, th I, I had the feeling Vic would dig that. The A story doesn't totally acknowledge it, but it's there. Not everything in the movie is subtle and fascinating, uh, but I do think overall this is more of a four-course meal than a McDonald's cheeseburger. So, uh, you know, I'll just say right now, I would be eager to watch this movie again. I, my note on this movie is that it is stylish to a fault. Uh, it feels very much like both the director and Bradley Cooper are just prepping their reel for future projects. But like that said, it's the real of someone who's really talented. Like I think this is a this is a really interesting movie. I too, uh, I too, like Rich had had read the books of blood, and so I knew where this was going. Uh, you know, when when I was watching it, and so the ending loses some of its punch just just by virtue of having that knowledge. But there's a very cool kind of Lovecraftian aspect that merges into the slasher aspect. This is definitely a slasher film, which is not something you see in this kind of big city setting very often. Um, it's it's an it's a very interesting film. It feels like the kind of thing that is promising uh, for future endeavors more than it really delivers in this one. But I agree, the kills are brutal. The camera work is is fantastic and inventive. And it's a it's an interesting movie. I don't know. I, I, I have a I, I have a I have a lot of respect for it, even if I'm not sure it's it's quite as great a film as as it could have been. Okay, let's double back to the strangers. Rich, what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, you could cut it down, and it's just the world's worst Airbnb ad. <laughs> um, I really like The Strangers. I, I, I actually, Vic, I can't. I actually, now that I think about it, I can't believe you mentioned. I believe the first time both Vic and I saw The Strangers, it's because both of us wanted to see it desperately and both of our wives desperately did not want to see it. My wife declared that she would never watch it because she had recently seen high tension and was like, I'm done. And she didn't want to see any more anything else that like that, uh, that had a hint of like home invasion to it. So what we did was we arranged a double date where Vic came over and me and Vic went into one room and watched the strangers and our wives stayed in the other room and watched, I believe, P.S. I Love You? Yep, that's yeah, the one. All right, there you go. That's the first time I saw the um, So, uh, I, you know, I I really enjoy this movie. I, I'm with you, Vic, but, like, the middle of the movie gets kind of, it's almost, like, muddy. Like, I have a hard time even, like, picking out specifics um, from the, from like the second act of, of this film. But I'm with you that the, the, the first act is beautiful. I think that it's the way that it raises, um, the tension over the course of like the first 30 minutes in particular is like, is pretty masterful. I do have to give a shout out to the fact that I don't remember where the film is set exactly, but you know, like in opening, like you've got Liv Tyler hanging out, they're eating bluebell ice cream, um, which is a, a, incredibly delicious Texas uh, ice cream chain um, that you don't see for some reason outside of Texas. Um, the killing is the, or I'm sorry, the, the initial like big jump scare is set to Joanna Newsom, who's sort of like a folky weirdo who has a, a really close place in, in my heart. Like, honestly, like if Scott Speedman had cracked a pizza port in the first 30 minutes, this thing would be making it to my final three, <laughs> just based on the style of the first half of the the look of the masks is not incredibly inventive, but it's still like very iconic and modern horror. And, you know, which is saying something because, because there's multiple masks, you know, I'm trying to think like, there's lots of like little things that are dropped along the, like one of the notes I made was there's the note uh, in there where he says something where, where I think Scott Speedman says something about like, he knows how to use a gun because he used to hunt with his father. And then like later on, it's casually mentioned that that's a lie. Um, like there are these like layers to their relationship that are cleverly nestled in the dialogue throughout the movie. And like, look, I enjoy a good indie chamber drama and, you know, to add this kind of horror on top of that is like a pretty sweet treat. Like I've enjoyed this movie. And I think that this movie to my wife's, to my wife's, uh, correct apprehension, this movie is definitely the progeny of high, t- high tension. Like this is a movie that is living in the wake of it. And I'm not saying it's derivative. I'm just saying that this is a film that probably got the budget that it did because of the success of high tension. It is definitely a home invasion thriller, um, horror thriller, right? No doubt about it. And, uh, I could, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Great points. Both of you. It's, it's really an interesting film. I think this is going to be another interesting debate as far as which movie advances. My tournament watch was the second watch for this movie, which I didn't love the first time I saw it, but digging the second movie, the strangers, we pray it, the strangers pray at night. 
very much. I was open to liking the original more having just watched that. I still though, haven't entirely gotten a handle on this movie. It's definitely effective. It's disturbing. It's a movie with some really tense and unsettling suspense sequences. The killers and their masks are very scary. The kills are cold, brutal, devoid of sentiment or sympathy. You really get like, this is one of the more realistic slasher movies, just in terms of the, the psychology of real life killers without this actually being based on real life killers, at least overtly. It does not have an ounce of care for the audience in terms of coddling us, playing anything that happens to the characters as tragic or otherwise cushioning the bad things characters do or have done to them with musical choices, the score, sappy dialogue or heroic sacrifices or any of the other artifice that cloaks the ugliness of killing and death in about 95% of movies out there. This movie is as starkly unreadable as the mask of one of its emotionless killers. And I love that. So it's kind of hard to put my finger on what didn't impress me about the movie or just kind of, I guess what didn't, what sort of leaves me a little cold. I guess ultimately it's that the good guys are frustrating in their ineptitude and frailty at various points. Vic touched on this. Maybe that's more realistic. Maybe I should acknowledge that I'd probably be worse than they are if I was in their shoes. But in the end, it kind of feels like the bad guys picked the right house. This couple doesn't push the killers to the limit with their resourceful action, determination, and strength. They're fairly easily terrorized. I don't think there's a final girl or final boy in this slasher film in classical terms. Maybe I should love that because it plays against cliches. If the movie goes another round, maybe I'll come to love that. But something about it just doesn't wow me. And I don't think it has anything to do with the quality of filmmaking uh, and that includes performances, directing, editing, cinematography, music. Yes, as you referenced as well. I'm, I'm a little baffled by my lack of enthusiasm for this really good movie. But, I mean, I'll jump ahead and, and, and say that <laughs> I think I'm going to vote for Midnight Meat Train. You think you're going to vote for Midnight Meat Train? I mean, you, you, or you are voting for Midnight Meat Train. I'm voting. I'm voting for Midnight Meat Train. Yeah. Vic, what do you I, think? I will say, I will say, John, in your defense, that Scott Speedman is this season's Patrick Wilson, in that he is a, a, a black void of charisma, and this is probably his best movie, and it's his his performance is not very good. I do have a Scott Speedman note. Uh, he was in the third, I think, the most recent season of You, which is a Netflix show about a stalker. It's not really a slasher thing at all, but I really like it. Actually, Kim and I, my wife, we watch it. He's aged uh, quite a bit since this movie, as have we all. But I, yeah, I think he seems like a good actor in that and very different from his character in The Strangers. You gonna go to bat for Scott Speedman now? Is that how far you're willing to go to spite me? <laughs> I'm not gonna stick up for Patrick Wilson. Don't worry, our friendship is intact. <laughs> uh, I I will say uh, uh, two two quick 
screenwritery things, one of the things, and with apologies to Brian Bertino, I apologize if, if I'm incorrect about this, but I believe that The Strangers claims to be based on a true story. It does. And my understanding is that at some point, Brian Bertino was in a cabin and someone knocked on the door and asked if Tamara was there. And he said, no, I think you've got the wrong house. And then they left. Yeah. And that is the basis for this being based on a true story. (laughs) That's pushing it. (laughs) Maybe elsewhere someone was also killed in a cabin and if you – smush those two stories together you got the strangers um you guys keep calling it a cabin it's not a cabin it's a house evil evil dead is a cabin look look at my shirt i am wearing my evil dead 40th anniversary shirt that is a cabin all right um i will also say uh with midnight meat train i had a development meeting with mandalay bay and I met with a just a creative executive there, which, if you don't know, is sort of two steps below a vice president. But this guy was, like, older and had clearly been there for a long time. He seemed like one of those people who was stuck where he was because he was so passionate that, like, he cared too much. He couldn't make the cold financial decisions you had to make to get past it, but he also clearly had good taste. His, his office was just stacked with scripts and props, and one of the props that he had – I wish I could remember what it was. But he had a prop from Midnight Meat Train, and he talked about that movie for a solid five minutes at the beginning of our meeting. He was – his proudest achievement was that he had brought in, developed, and, and gotten to the screen Midnight Meat Train. And I loved him. Like he was one of those people you just enormously like and go – this is a guy who gets it. He cares. I've never forgotten one of the things that he told me. I, I don't remember quite how it came up in our conversation. Uh, you know, that that horror horror people, the people who come in and pitch horror movies might be weird. He said the horror people are never weird. They're always really nice. It's the guys who come in and pitch the really, like, violent crime movies. Those guys are odd. I don't like them. I, I, I wish I could remember the, the gentleman's name or anything else about him, but – there was there was somebody at Mandalay Bay who was uh, the biggest champion that Midnight Meat Train ever had. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a this is a tough choice, but I'm gonna say that the Stranger sticks the, the landing in a way that Midnight Meat Train kind of doesn't, and that's a little bit skewed again because I knew the landing. For Midnight Meat Train going in, but uh, this is a this is a tough call. And Midnight Meat Train surprised me, John. I think a bit like it did you. Um, the the violence for the sake of violence does not inherently get me on board with your film. But when it's done stylishly, when you find a way to make something not just violent but effectively violent, that it's it's upsetting or that it it sort of gets under my skin a little bit. Um, that's a, that's a different thing. And the midnight meat train definitely does that. Uh, it's, it's a worthy contender in this space, but I'm going to cast my Rangers. Okay. I, I think it's kind of a little bit of a revelation personally. I mean, I feel like this could be something like 
the um, from last season, the way that I mean, terrified was a high seed, but just something that could kind of have a really nice unexpected run um, because I, I just I think that I want to keep digging into that film. And uh, Rich, I assume you're going to vote for that since you you put it in the tournament. But uh, we've got a tie here, man. So tell us which film is advancing. Honestly, I am in kind of a tough spot here. Um, you know, I was really excited to bring Midnight Meat Train uh, into the competition. I'm really glad that you liked it. I actually was fearing the reaction that it would get because it is so sort of outside the, I think that this, the, the mold of what we, of what we typically watch both like stylistically and just in terms of like the way that the, the story itself plays out. And I have a lot of love for this movie. Um, That said, like, I don't feel the same way about the cast that you do. I think it's an impressive set of names, but I don't feel like the performances are there. And it could be that I have a bias against Bradley Cooper, which doesn't help me, but I don't enjoy watching Bradley Cooper act, which makes this kind of a, of a, of a tough film. I feel like I should um, say that I didn't say anything about him. I actually think he's perfectly fine. Yeah. For the record, I, I have no problem with his performance. I think he's capital A acting in this. I think this is, like I said, I think this is for his real, but Vinny Jones fucking crushes it, dude. That yes. guy, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a much simpler performance, but he's captivating as the, the killer. Let's not get into it yeah. because yeah, we got to keep moving, but I, I really like everyone, honestly, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I got to say, like, the thing that, that I really liked about watching The Strangers, and I wasn't that excited about going back and watching it again, I don't even know that's a good thing, which is that I really, it was one of those movies that I really felt like I was able to, like, settle into. Like, I think I was kind of distracted when I turned it on, and it drew me in, and it just felt like something that I kind of wanted to, like, turn the volume up, turn the lights down, and just be, like, absorbed in, like, the atmosphere of that movie, which made me really like it more than I did. And, and I agree with everything that Vic said, and I found the ending like truly chilling, but then I find the end of the, of midnight metrine, like completely bizarre and fantastical in a way that I think makes it totally unique to all the other stories we're, we're watching. So this is a, this is a tough decision, but actually think i'm going to pick the strangers Mm. that's kind of heartbreaking to me i mean i i will say that i definitely am looking forward to doing one more show about the strangers i don't think you're going to get much more than that out of it for me whereas i thought that midnight me train might have three or four okay at least one more than the strangers (laughs) So I think it's really a bummer that we're not going to look at that movie in any greater detail. I really, really, it was, it probably of all the movies that I've watched for this tournament that I hadn't already seen, it was the one that I was most eager to sink my teeth into with what we do with the show and the strangers. I I don't feel that way. So this one, this actually, this hurts. This, this really honestly does hurt. I, th- I think that the biz- the biggest bummer about losing it is that you never really get to like talk about the third act, which is like 
where the movie sort of like shows its true self. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm with you, John. I will say, I will say, and I do think this makes a difference. This was the third time that I've seen Midnight Meat Train, whereas it's the first time that you saw it. And I, I do feel like repeated viewings, like I wanted to get back to the moments where Vinnie Jones, like it, like if you edited this movie down to like just Vinnie Jones's story, um, like I am totally on board, but I found a lot of the Bradley Cooper, like drama, like hard to sit through, except for the stuff with his, his girlfriend, which I agree was weird in a way that like you is really hard to put your finger on. Yeah. So anyways, I'm, I am sorry to disappoint you. I am please. If you haven't seen Midnight Meat Train, go find it. But I'm excited to watch The Strangers again. John, I'm just curious. Did you ever happen to to hit on either Leslie Bibb or Liv Tyler in a bar? <laughs> Alas, did that ever come up? Not, not to my knowledge. No, I mean, uh, I I did uh, cast a wide net, as they say, but uh, but no, I don't, I don't think so. This outcome might be this was bad seating we were talking about perfect seating i think that maybe these two films should not have gone up against each other had i seen midnight me train uh it would have had a higher seed and it would have definitely made it to the second round so i guess this just comes down to the rush at the end as we were trying to get this season going and uh it's a bummer that uh that it worked out this way all right. Well, I hate to end the show on a on a downbeat note, but uh, frankly, I'm I'm disconsolate. So I'm going to have to go cry and watch the Silver Linings playbook. <laughs> maybe, maybe watch Fear Street '78, John. That'll cheer you up. Oh yeah. If you, do you yeah. want to have to find a new co-host for next time? Because I'm dead. Suicide. All right. Great. That's uh, That'll turn the mood around. All right, folks, let me tell you what will turn the mood around is telling you what's on tap for our next episode. This is going to be a great show, folks. Psycho, obviously a number one seed, faces Blood Feast, a number 16 seed. Maniac 2012, starring Elijah Wood, squares off with Dario Argento's opera. That should be interesting. And finally, Friday the 13th, Part 4 goes up against Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. A couple of heavyweights duking it out in the middle of the ring there. Exciting stuff. I know I can't wait to get into it, but for now, that's going to do it for this show. I hope you all lock the doors, load up your weapons, and beware shadowy figures on the periphery of your property. And if anyone asks for Tamara, don't open the fucking door. Sleep well, slasher fans. 